Hurley Haywood, three-time Lamar winner, winner of Daytona 24-hour Sebring, Porsche factory driver, sports car racing legend. If you could describe this dinner with racers in one word, what would it be? Great one. That's two. That's two that's words. Two. That's cheating. Two words. Oh, come on. One word? <laughs> one. <laughs> the answer should always be, come on, I'm Hurley Haywood. Yeah, like, he just stares at you. And now for Dinner with Racers, presented by Continental Tire. With your hosts, Ryan Eversley and Sean Heckman. Placeholder Radio. Welcome to Dinner with Racers, Season 2. So, for this introduction, we're going to be classy, because this episode is all class. Yeah, well, I mean, we put the ass in class. There it is. Uh, here's why. We took a trip, which we're wrapping up right now, uh, where we drove across 29 states for 12,000 miles over the course of 40 days to bring you 28 free podcast recordings that we get no royalties from, all so that uh, you can enjoy and thank us, which actually many of you have done. Yeah. But most likely also compare us to season one and go, I like that one better. (laughs) But one of the things you're going to enjoy is the fact that this season we got some awesome guests, including none other than Hurley Haywood. Yeah, Hurley needs no introduction to sports car racing fans, but for those of you that might be just all-around racing fans, Hurley is currently tied as the winningest driver at the Daytona 24-hour overall with Scott Pruitt, as well as been... A Lamar winner, Sebring winner, the guy's done it all. For uh, Porsche Files, he's probably known as like the American factory driver for a very long time. We had Patrick Long on last year, who is the current active American factory driver, but Hurley was sort of the OG. Oh. And uh huh. I think he'd appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so uh, we drove out to St. Augustine, Florida in our Honda Odyssey with uh, what kind of tires? Continental tires. Cross contact LX20s. Uh, we actually met up with Hurley at his house because parking in St. Augustine is kind of tough. Uh, amazing city, by the way. But uh, we were immediately greeted by his uh, two Cocker Spaniels. That's right. Which were named Watkins and Indy. Yeah. And then we uh, walked out to the tasting room in St. Augustine. Right. Had uh, tapas. He had some wine. Did you have some wine? I did have wine with Hurley Haywood. Yeah, I did. Um, yeah. And, uh, of course, I had a chicken sandwich. Yeah, I had the scallops, and I think I also tried to get another crab cake salad because the David Hobbs one was so good. But anyway, we talk about a lot of very, very cool stuff. Obviously, uh, Hurley's history in the sport is is pretty heralded. So, you know, we talk about him starting out in the autocross days. We talk about some of his main rivals, some of his main competitors, some of his big wins. Uh, there is currently a documentary, uh, as well as autobiography, being uh, put together. The documentary should, in theory, come out next year about uh, sort of the dynamic duo of him and one of his co-drivers, Peter Craig. And uh, so we talk about a little bit about that as sort of a preview to uh, the big documentary coming out next year. Uh, and just genuinely, Hurley, for not knowing us very well, could not have been more helpful and genuine and fairly candid with his life. So we really appreciate Hurley giving us the time. He didn't need to. And uh, with all that being said, sit down, listen, Hurley Haywood. Meow. All right, we're going to start in five, four, three, two. All right, well then uh, let's put that headset on. Let's get going. (laughs) You can hear us okay? Yep. All right, well let's get right into that then. So you were Janet Guthrie's teammate at Indy. You did one Indy 500 appearance. Yep. 
Um, according to Wikipedia, you had 18 <laughs> IndyCar appearances. I'm thinking it's because you finished 18th at Indy. No, no. I no? had 18, uh, 18 IndyCar starts with various teams. Oh, wow. You did? Okay. Yeah. All right. And But I tried. I only raced in Indianapolis one time. I tried to get in the show three times and made it once. Okay. Okay. So uh, that was for a guy named Lindsey Hopkins nice. from Atlanta. He okay. was a great, he was like the ultimate private entry guy. And he was, you know, quite wealthy because he was in the Coca-Cola business. And he just loved racing. And uh, we had a really nice time racing for him. And it was a big thrill. How was, uh, how was racing with Janet? Did it was good. It? You know, she was, you know, there was so much hype around right. Uh, Janet and being a, a woman and you know IndyCar racing that you know she was just I was sort of sitting in the background <laughs> um, but it was uh, it was a good experience right and and based on our extensive time hanging out together of all of 10 minutes um, I'm going to say you like that when there wasn't a lot of fanfare around you and you could just do your thing <laughs> yeah yeah what, what are we drinking here and yeah. cheers cheers yeah, yeah. absolutely thanks for taking the time with us I see Sean is drinking a vintage Coke. Coke, yeah, it's. Uh, I'm not sure what vintage. Yeah, 2016. It's in June. They uh, they just unleashed it, so I'm letting it air a little bit. <laughs> and we got to plug uh, Michael's Tasting Room, St. Augustine, mm -hmm. Florida. Kind enough to give us a primo booth here. Yeah. So I'm I'm glad you mentioned Michael's Tasting Room in St. Augustine, Florida, because like I'm nervous to mention St. Augustine because this place is awesome, and I have a feeling this is not a place like. It's a cool place to visit, but I think it's only cool because there's no one here. Well, you should come on weekends. Really? Oh, right. Uh, it, we, I've moved here to St. Augustine five years ago, and in the last five years, this place has just taken off with, with you know, people coming in, tourists coming in. Right. The traffic problems in St. Augustine are n enormous because well, of our old streets old, here. old, narrow oh, roads yeah, here, right. So... Um, we're trying to work up a contingency plan that's going to make the residents happy, the tourists happy. So it's, it's almost impossible to do that, but right. they're working on it. Yeah. Well, we won't give away where you live, but we walked by the fort. And I have the feeling that you take the time to really learn about your surroundings. So tell me about the St. Augustine Fort. You pointed out this is the oldest city in America. Well, you're, that's very perceptive because that's totally right um, on both the homes that I've had um, the place we I lived before here was in Ponte Vedra we had a house right on the on the ocean and when we were designing the house we really took into effect the the dune curvature okay and so we built the house down in the dunes and I had one sort of dune on the north side of the house, which really was protective in, in storms. And the sure. guys that I s sold it to was the uh, guy that ran the Peter Peterson Museum oh. in oh, California. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he was a friend of Bill Warner's, and Bill Warner said, oh, you got to look at Hurley's house. And they came and looked at it and said, okay, we'll buy it. <laughs> nice. So he, he just called me after the storm came through, and he said, i got to thank you for building a great house because this thing did exactly what it was supposed right, to do. So. Right. So when we moved down here, um, I had a really great architect that I was working with, and he he specialized in sort of these. Um, it's hard to actually 
describe the architecture of the house is kind of a little bit uh, low country. It's kind of Key West style. Sure. It's a mixture of both. But when people walk by it, they always, you know, if I'm working in the yard or something, people always stop. Oh, I love your house. I love the way that you've renovated it, which to me is the greatest compliment you can get because the house is brand new. Right, so right. It looks like it belongs in the neighborhood. Yeah. So that, that was an important consideration when we were designing the house. Because there are buildings here that are literally from the 1600s. Yeah. That's crazy. And the, and the codes here to build stuff is uh, really restrictive. I mean, I had to pay like $10,000 to get an architectural or an archaeological dig oh, in wow. the land that we were building the house on to make sure that there was no you know, ancient pot some there. Things some things you didn't sure. know about, yeah. sure. sure. So it, was, <laughs> it wasn't easy to build here. Because this was originally a, a Spanish city. Yep. Um, and then obviously, we were talking about this on the walkover, but it was originally Spanish city, taken over by the French when, when they had their fun. And <laughs> and then, uh, and it, was it part of the Louisiana Purchase, or was this part of like Andrew Jackson's kind of ransack? I'm not good at history. All right, you don't have to know. <laughs> Forget it. We'll move on. <laughs> so we get to your house. And uh, we, we meet, I want to say Michael? Steve. Steve. Ah, sorry. I'm, I'm <laughs> Way off. off to a great start. Steve. Way off. We meet Steve. And then we meet your dogs, which, first of all, I was like, okay, we're going to get off just fine here. Yeah. You have two, I want to say they're Cocker Spaniels. English Cockers. Yep. Okay, English yes. Cockers. One is named Watkins. The other is named Indy. Yep. And these are clearly, like, these are your babies. Yep. These are, there's yeah. no children. There are two, two Cocker Spaniels. Yep. And My kind of guy. We got along great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I had right I had three cats. I gave two cats away. The cats' names were Octane, which you met. Yes, she, yeah. she's at the house. Yeah. And then I had uh, Turbo and Booster. <laughs> uh, and so we, we gave those two cats to Steve's mother. Is Steve cool with these names? Yeah, he's okay. Because uh, like when I think of, when I think about uh, uh, my home life, I, d I don't think a racing name would have worked with our with our little corgi. <laughs> <laughs> but it's surprising the the. The names fit their personality, so, um, you know, yeah, he's good with it. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so we, we need to go into this story because I think it would work because you know the name, well, maybe. Do you know the name Decal? Decal? Decal, former IMSA mechanic. Yes. Yeah, God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So my dad being a former John Paul senior mechanic, he had – not warned me, but told me the legend of Decal originally. And on this trip, you'll, you'll know this name as well, I imagine, Max Jones. The story that came out of this trip that we're kind of excited about, that we had no clue, was that Decal actually saved Max Jones's life. Well, you want to know, you want to know who saved my life? Yes. There we go, yeah. Uh, Jack Baldwin. Okay. Okay. I was uh, testing for... Uh, Bobby Rinsler, who okay. was the RC Cola yeah, can yeah, yeah. team with the 917-10. And they had a, a wing, a special wing that was designed by Caltech for the car. And the wing was designed to meet the new rules that they had uh, initiated for uh, the uh, 74 season. So basically they were right at the cusp of banning this car. So it was kind of one last shot. Sure. And so they said, oh, we'll get Hurley to, to do the testing. So I flew from here to, to Atlanta, went to road Atlanta on the second car. The, 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 wing, the car 
took off on the the uh, hill at, at uh, on the back straight. Yeah. yeah. They had a little dip and flew over and did a 180 degree flip and landed on the on the on its, its top and shared the roll bar over. So I was, my head was on the pavement, sure. and uh, it basically had choked the the uh, helmet strap had choked me. Yeah, and just a miracle, Jack Baldwin and a buddy of his, a cop, was out there, right where I went over. Yeah. So the two of them jumped over the fence, ran over. There's no safety crews, no nothing. It's just a private a test. test right. No safety guys out there. They, they they basically picked the car, put the car over back on its wheels, and got my helmet off. And the guy had a trach tube in his in the back of his car and stuck it down my throat and got me breathing again. No way! Holy and then threw me in the back back of a station wagon and took me down to uh, the hospital in Gainesville. Yeah. So. Wow! You have Jack, no memory. If, if Jack Baldwin hadn't been standing there. Uh, Watching that test, I probably wouldn't be here today. That is unbelievable. And he said I was fighting. You know, Jack is a big guy, yeah, right. and I'm not, you know, that big. And he said, "Man, you, I've never tried to hold on to a stronger guy than you because I was trying to fight him the whole way, sticking this thing down oh, my yeah, tube, yeah. and you know, I, I was kind of freaked out by the whole thing." So yeah. he said, "You were like Superman." I was trying, <laughs> trying. He said, "I was not going to let this guy die." Do you remember on that my at all? watch? Do you have any memory of this? No, I, you know, I it was I had a concussion. Yeah, sure. Off the thing, of course. And uh, my family s- sent down a, a plane and took me back to Chicago, f- to Billings, um, and I was two weeks in the hospital, and then I got released, so everything was fine. Right. I've never heard that story before. Is that like common knowledge that you had a blowover in a 917? Yeah. Yeah. Man. <laughs> Jesus. Same wow. place where Mark Dunne went over. Yeah. <laughs> so. so I was going to I was about to say you actually have gone had a pretty good career of being fairly unscathed. <laughs> <laughs> but apparently that's actually not true. How how has the safety in your mind changed from from then to now? When I reminisce with some of my, you know, buddies uh, that survived that time that we raised, you know, we are we're lucky. I mean, the kind of crashes that we had and we all crash in those GTP cars. Right. Uh, it's just a miracle that we didn't get hurt m- right. more seriously. Right. My only really serious accident was in 1983, where I had an accident in a 935 at Mosport yeah. and and screwed my leg up. And basically, it was a serious accident, a serious enough accident that I had to wait two years before I could push the clutch down on a Porsche. Oh, wow. Okay. And so when I realized that I was not going to be able to drive a Porsche, Jaguar came to me and said, you don't have to drive, you don't have to push the clutch in a Jaguar. We have a Hewlin gearbox, and you just have to push the clutch to get in and out of the pits. So I drove for two and a half years for Jag and then went back to Porsche. It was with Porsche's permission that I went to race wow. for Jaguar. They didn't okay. want me sitting around, you know, getting stale. Kind of so, nothing, sure. <laughs> um, That's unheard of today. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. One, because you right. had to use a clutch. But second. <laughs> <laughs> right. The clutch is the weird part. <laughs> We're going to jump and fa- jump around a lot, but uh, uh, forget this racing nonsense for a second. You have a very nice house. What's in your DVR? 
What's in the DVR? Yeah. What what shows? What what, what movies? What the hell what's, is a what DVR? <laughs> I'll tell you. If you go into my house, yeah. The only racing trophy that I have in my house is the trophy from Le Mans. Okay. And that's a it's a beautiful Steuben glass yeah. rock. Yeah. And it was sitting. I don't know if you noticed it was sitting on the coffee table. So, I'm not big at having a lot of racing stuff in my home. Mm. But we have our our collection, our museum, which is uh, in Jacksonville, that's associated with our dealership. So it's now. all part of the Brumos setup. Right. Yeah. And the, Brum- the Brumos dealerships were sold. In uh, We turned the keys over to the field group in uh, April. Right. And the caveat was that we were able to keep the space... Okay. For two years. And as we speak, uh, Mr. Davis is building a new facility for our collection. Oh, neat. And all of the trophies, all the cars, all that stuff will be moved over to the new facility. Talk about the first time you win the mall. Because by the third time, you're like, eh, this old thing. Well, I mean, the first time was pretty incredible. I, I got a call from Joe Hoppen, who used to run the Porsche program here in the United States and Joe called and said I've had an inquiry by the Porsche factory about you driving at Le Mans I practically dropped the phone and I said are you kidding me and so you know other than the movie Le Mans I really didn't have any concept of what really Le Mans was, was I knew it was a big race I knew it was 24 hours I had won two two uh, 24-hour Daytona races. I actually won the third one in 77. So I had three under my belt, and then I went to Le Mans. So I think that's why the Porsche factory said, you know, this guy has the right touch, and we, we need to sort of evaluate him. So I went over there, and uh, I was expecting... <laughs> Le Mans to be this sort of quaint little city out in the middle of nowhere and it is a huge industrial city so I arrived there sort of late in the afternoon and I was supposed to hook up with the with the Porsche factory but I had very little detailed information on where I was supposed to go okay. but I and I never asked because I thought well this is going to be an easy deal you know I'll find them it's not a big place and I drove around for hours <laughs> trying to find out where, where the hell I was. I don't speak right. French. And, and no one has any interest in helping an American so out there. I'm, <laughs> it's, it's nightfall now, and it's like 11 o'clock at night. And I see this guy walking down the road with a Porsche jacket on. So I honk my horn, I wave, and I, he says, he, I stop. He looks in the window, he says, ah, he says, Herr Haywood, he says, we've been waiting for you. So it turns out that it's Klaus Bischoff, who's my crew, who t- turns out to be my crew chief. Oh, nice. thing. So he says, I must take you into the bar and uh, in- introduce you to the, the guys that are going to be working on the car. So we go into this bar. I hadn't slept now in 48 hours, so we have massive amounts of alcohol. <laughs> I'm totally <laughs> faced and... I said, well, wh- where yes. am I going to go? And he says, well, you've got to be at the cathedral at 9 o'clock in the morning. So the best thing to do is drive your car to the cathedral. I'll take you there. 
and just sleep, sleep in, the in the back seat. <laughs> yeah, right. So right. I said, Welcome to France. Yeah. yeah. Geez, are you kidding me? You made it. So <laughs> that's where I ended up. So the next day, I'm having dinner tomorrow night with Manfred Yanka, who is the head of the Porsche racing team, okay. PR department. Yeah. I'm having dinner with him tomorrow. He was the first guy that I heard knocking on the window, like, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. Why? We've been so worried about where you are. <laughs> and I said, hey, you know, I, it wasn't my idea to, <laughs> to do this. So, um, But anyway, it all worked out, and the car was just the most unbelievably beautiful thing I've ever laid my eyes on, the 936. And when I'm asked today, what what is your favorite race car? I always say, that's the car. And... So I was super, super excited about driving, and, and uh, it was just a huge honor. They gave me the honor of of starting the race. So Chris Economaki was there with Speedsport News, and Chris, you know, the, you probably don't know Chris, but he was into everything. He had to be sort of right in, in your face the right, whole time. Right, And so he was... Uh, asked to join in the in the briefing that we had of what to do at the start of the race. So he was all intense. Yeah. So I was really kind of really nervous. And how old are you at this point? Maybe 25. Yeah. So I start the race and the throttle jam <laughs> going <laughs> to the first corner. Of course. Oh. Of and course. I mean, I like holy <laughs> shit. And <laughs> I've got. I'm trying to. You know, keep the car under control. It's the, it's the you know you take the Dunlop Bridge, then you go down that hill, yes. and the next t- t- I think it's called Teloche is a really fast uh, sort of S curve that leads out onto the Molson yes. Strait. Yeah. And it it when I lifted, it was stuck wide open. So <laughs> um, I go oh shit. So I I um, hit the kill button, sort of trying to get out of the way of everybody because I got everybody behind me. I'm sitting on the fr- front row. And luckily, I was on the inside, so I sort of pulled off to the into the grass. But by this time, I was going too sh- slow to to jump start the car again. Yeah. So it's now, s- I couldn't restart it because it was blow the motor up. So, I'm, so I have to take the... T- tail off now <laughs> we had a lesson on how to do that for one person so one person to get the tail oh, okay. off right. of a 936 yeah. was an, an immense that's a deal big, that's yeah. a big car yeah. like yeah. the back of that car yeah. is and it's a huge you know yeah. it weighs a ton yeah so it was a miracle i was able to do it right i found out where the problem was i got it i got a jury rig so it wasn't wide open put the tail back on Got it going again and sort of limped back to the pits. And, you know, that was it. But, but by that time, we had lost like a lap and a half. So Jurgen Barth and myself were teamed together. So we, we soldiered on. You know, we were running pretty competitive. And then the X car had a problem, and they went out. So they, they moved X over to our car. And, like, this guy was a master. I mean, this guy was so incredible at night. He was just able to tick off these these incredible lap times, and we caught up and and uh, and and won the race. And then so, so they said, "Well, we're going to get Mr. Haywood. Uh, we want Mr. Haywood to finish the race." So 
he did a good job keeping everything under control. So we're, we'll have him finish the race too. So I'm in the car, we're motoring around, and all of a sudden I, I kind of feel the engine beginning to tighten up a little bit. And I look in the rearview mirror and there's smoke coming oh, no. out of the back of this car. Yeah. It is like, oh my God. And how long to go at this point? So we, like, at, like a half an hour oh, wow. no. left to go. No. And so I called in. Back then, we didn't have radios that we could talk to like we're talking now. Right. We had a microphone that we stuck underneath our no helmet. No way. I didn't and know And it was a one-sided conversation, so yeah. we could talk to them. I say, I've got a problem. I'm going. I'm coming slowly back to the pits. Something big. There's lots of smoke coming out of the tailpipes. So they come in. They analyze what the problem is. They take the spark plug off uh, of the cylinder, and basically we're running on fi five cylinders okay. at that point. Yeah. And then they put Jurgen Barth in the car because Jurgen was more technically um, inclined than I was. And he, given the mission of doing one lap in a certain amount of time to make the 24 hours, because you couldn't, yeah. you know, you had to pass the clock the start-finish line at 24 hours or after 24 right. hours. Yes, yes. So he goes too fast on the first lap, <laughs> uh, and he had to make another lap. Which, if he had gone slower, it could have ended right literally, there. literally, yeah. when that car crossed the finish line, it, it blew up. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and then Jurgen, so the, the, everybody, the crew is there, and Jurgen and the crew is just so excited that we won, and... I, I jump on the side and I got my hand behind the seat and, and Jurgen is so excited he's hanging back and forth and he broke my finger. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <in the laughs> so anyway, that was one of those things where you break a bone and you don't even feel it because yeah. you had so much hype going on. But it it was pretty cool, dude. That's that, was that's my awesome. first, that was my so first. So your first Lamar win was like chaos. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah right <laughs> from <laughs> the get-go. Yeah. But we survived. So. Yeah. You, you made an interesting statement, though, that, that Lamar, you know, at the time was obviously it was something you were excited to do, but it wasn't sort of on your radar. What what was kind of the thing growing up for you? Was it was it Indy? Was it not even racing? Well, I mean, you know, Indy was a really big deal because I would, you know, my dad took me to Indianapolis back, right. you know, back was in your, the... Was your dad a big racing guy? No, <laughs> no, it was just... Uh, we just had some tickets, and he said, you want to go to India? And I said, yeah. All right. And cool. I, I went there, and it was just like this crazy thing. I mean, yeah. it was just so exciting. Right. After that, that was in the 60s. And then, um, you know, I started racing with Peter in 69, and that was with GT Racing. And then, unfortunately, after, after we won... Uh, Watkins Glen in 69 the uh, GT portion of the race it was a six hour world championship race we won the GT portion and weeks after that high I got the notice from the draft that I was going to Vietnam yeah. Yeah. Wait, anyway, so, so that, we that, that, that was like <laughs> and yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> away I went right. and uh, that put a screeching uh, halt to my racing career and right. then when I came back, I started again in uh, '71 with Peter, and won the first IMSA race at, right. at uh, BIR. So you did a you did a brief tour in Vietnam, um, and not brief read, enough. Yeah, 
Well, we read that you had uh, you had a special distinction. You were considered, I forget, I'm going to get the term wrong, a stage four? Or specialist, a specialist four. Specialist four, specialist four yeah. What does yeah. that mean? That meant, meant that I was in uh, clerical work, uh, ah. and I ended up working for an airfield uh, commander in, in okay. Kanto, in an Air Force base. Okay. It was actually a helicopter base. Okay. And uh, so he, like me, and we, we had a really nice, you know, relationship and uh, it was a cool thing but the the guy that my direct report was a captain he was sat in the same office that I did and he didn't like me too much <laughs> and uh, he just thought that I was just some privileged kid and knew uh, I wanted okay. to go racing and yeah right you know so he gave me a pretty hard time and years after that I was at a race in Atlanta and I look up and I see this guy walking toward me, and I said, "Oh shit!" I said, "That, that's, that's not who I think it is." And sure right. enough, he walked up and he says, "You probably don't remember me." I said, "Oh yes, I do." <laughs> so he said, "You know, you're living the dream," and I said, "You're right." And uh, thanks for all the support. Yeah, <laughs> that's so. awesome. How come you never talk about that? Why don't I? Yeah. Uh, a lot of guys that were in Vietnam don't talk about it. Yeah. Sure. It was just a really, di it was a really hard thing. Right. Yeah. And it was such an unpopular war that, of course. you know, when we came back into the States, uh, you know, people would spit on us. Right. Now when vets are coming back from uh, the different theaters, it's just, you know, it's like a whole different mindset. So, But the timing couldn't have been worse. No. In the sense that, like, right you know, in the middle of well, like every sports car guy, you know, spends his career trying to find his guy. You know, that guy who's going to help take him to be his co-driver, and, and and you're off and run away. You find that with Peter, and then, boom, you're gone. And now he has plenty well, of time to go find another. Peter, co Peter was patient, so yeah. it was, you know, he he was a naval officer himself, so okay. he knew the military. Uh, he said, "This is a good thing. You know, you need to serve your country." Uh, my parents were not going to interfere. They weren't going to try to, you know, pull any strings to keep me stateside. Right. And I appreciated that. When you look back at it, I, you know, that experience was a good experience. Right. We do a pass along question on on dinner with racers, and normally we wait until a little later in the episode. But it's very particular. This one is very particular to you, and kind of sets the stage where I wanted to go with it. So we had lunch with David Hobbs earlier. And David's question, who he didn't take any time to think of, was uh, what was it like driving with Peter Gregg? And I want to take that question a little bit further because you guys had such a special relationship that lasted so long. I want to know how you met and then what the first interaction was like. Because so many people in my career I can think of, the first time I met him, Sean, for example, first time I met this guy, I was like, ugh. And then now we're traveling across the country for the second time over a 30-day period. But your first interaction with so many people in this sport can be whatever, and then you might get paired later in a car or whatever, and it changes completely. So I'm just curious, and well, David's question. That was uh, That's a really easy question to answer because I was in college. I had a really fast Corvette that I used to take to autocrosses, and there was an autocross at a Winn-Dixie uh, facility at the parking lot of a Winn-Dixie store. And I was there, and Peter Gregg arrives with his race car and a full crew. 
Oh, all dressed in crew uniforms to a and an autocross. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, everybody's going, oh, my God, you know, that's not that's not fair and blah, blah, blah. Sure. And I didn't know who Peter Craig was sure. from okay. a hole in the wall. Yeah. So we tied for the fastest time of the day. So every time that Peter get on the track, it was something that he wanted to do. So we were going to have a runoff to see who was the fastest. And I had a really fast Corvette. He had a 911. And I beat him. And so he came, he came up to me and he said, you know, he said, I don't know who you are, but he said, you got to be pretty good to beat me. <laughs> oh, and he said, come my, on. My, my wife is <laughs> cooking dinner, uh, and would you like to come back and have dinner with us? And I said, sure, I'd love to. So I went back. He lived on a, in a beautiful home right on the river in uh, downtown Jacksonville. And uh, that's how the relationship got going. And uh, his first wife, Jennifer, is my best friend still to this day. So what did he uh, do to have that kind of income? Like what was his background to allow him a crew and all this to come to an autocross? Well, he business? owned Brumos. Okay, all right. so he'd already had yeah, the dealership. he had the dealership. Okay. He bought the dealership yeah, yeah. in 1965. Okay. I met him in, this was 67. Okay. And uh, I was in college in 67, and, and he knew I wanted to get going in racing. And, um, you know, I back then you had to wait until you were 21. So on the d day of my birthday, we were in our, for my first regional race, which was happened to be at Daytona. And then that was that was May fourth, and then Peter gets this. You know, he he said we we need to race at the six hours of Watkins Glen, which was in June. I said, how how am I going to do that? I I got one regional race in, under my belt. So we'll get another one, and we'll 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 uh, get you a Grand National license in the mail from NASCAR. <laughs> Twenty bucks. <laughs> Oh, you no got a bona fide no NASCAR way. license for nice. 20 bucks. Okay. And he said, once you have that, then we'll apply to the FIA and get you a grade B license. So I had all the right licenses, went to Watkins Glen. All the SCCA guys were totally freaked out. They said, you know, who is this person? You know, he's racing, racing in, a, in a world championship race with no credentials. And Peter said, don't worry, he's... Okay, I, I got it under control. I assume he had the influence at that point to just sort of yeah. get what he wanted. And he, sure. So he, uh, and then, you know, we were, you know, competitive and, and won the race So in our class. So the flip side is that he's telling people at the time, yeah, I found this kid at a Winn-Dixie autocross. <laughs> yeah. And we're going to bring him to the six-hour. It was yeah. a, little, a, little, a little more embellished than that. Peter was super, super strict. I mean, he was not somebody that you wanted to... Uh, not do what he would not do what you were told to do sure sure and he had a little bit of a reputation for being a bit temperamental <laughs> just, just <laughs> an understatement <laughs> he had a difficult personality because he was highly educated okay he was harvard, Went graduate. To harvard right right he was spent a naval intelligence officer and he was when he wanted to be he could be the most charming person in the world right but he didn't like journalists, okay. so he treated journalists just awful. There was only a handful of guys. Leon Mandel was a good friend of his. Okay. And, but Leo was one of the few journalists that he actually 
would give took it a liking to. to. Okay. And would give the story to. Right. Everybody else was, you know, f you, get out of here. I right. don't want to talk to you. You're not. You're beneath me. Okay. So it was. It was just came back to that aristocratic. So, yeah, yeah. He was just really a, a, a snob some of the times, sure. but. You know, that was his personality, and if you wanted to be his friend, that was what you had to deal with. Right. At this point, you guys are just, you guys are the team, so to yeah. speak. And I, you know, with Batman and Robin. Right. <laughs> like that was actually it. a thing, right? Yeah. You guys. Yeah. <laughs> did he embrace that? Yeah. He uh, did? Yeah. Okay. He, 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 yeah, he liked that. <laughs> so you guys end up winning Daytona for the first time. And at that point, do you know, like, okay, I'm going to be able to continue doing this for a long time regardless the, of who I drive with. The thing that, you know, I had won championships in 71 and 72, but it was against good drivers, but not the kind of drivers that you read about in magazines. When we went to Daytona, Porsche had given Roger Penske a car for Mark Donahue and George Fulmer, and, he gave Pete, and they gave Peter a car. So we had identical cars. And so during that race, I got the chance to uh, nose to tail with George Fulmer. And, you know, I said, man, you know, if I can keep up with this guy, you know, I'm, this isn't a fluke. I, I'm doing something right. Because the cars were totally equal. So it wasn't like yeah, you couldn't. There was no excuse. their car was better or yeah. my car was better. It was all totally equal. And so that kind of gave me the confidence. And then, you know, I had, had I'd known Mark Donahue, and Mark, I met Mark back in the Trans Am days when Peter was, was racing for George Moore. And Peter would send me down on spy missions to the <laughs> Penske camp. <laughs> and Judy Stropas hey, you know, said, who is this kid? He, he, yeah, he looks like yeah. Peter's brother. Get him out of here. Get him out of here. <laughs> so I had met Mark, and Mark and I had become friends. And when I started the Can-Am in 73, I mean, Mark Donahue really was so instrumental in helping me get my arms around driving, you know, 1,200 horsepower. Crazy cars. Yeah. Car. You know. <laughs> I, my reference to that was a... 300 horsepower 911, and suddenly I was jumping into a yeah, thousand, yeah, uh, you know, yeah. 1100, 1200 horsepower prototype. One of the actually craziest cars of all time on this planet. Yeah, and still referred to as this. Thing. And I still have mine. Like, really? Yeah. That's awesome. That's yeah. so cool. Is, that, is it Brumos? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we gotta go there. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, you definitely need. Maybe not this time by, but. Right. When we get into our new digs, um, okay, yeah. definitely season four. Yeah, yeah. we're taking it. How long is it going to take? Uh, probably a year and a half. Okay, season, season four. Five. Season five. <laughs> Here in this continental. <laughs> who was who was kind of your? Uh, obviously, you and Peter were very attached. Who who were who were your guys at the track? Like we all kind of have our cliques. Who who are the like the drinking buddies post race? During the time I was racing. Yeah, during during like the seventies, during the, the heyday. You know, it was like it's so different then than it is now. Really, your 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 team that you're driving for keeps their drivers in this really close capsule. So you have your motorhomes, you have your trailer, you have yeah. your encampment, and the guys really are not allowed to go outside of that during a racing weekend. Right. When I was racing, we would 
race or test or do whatever we were doing, and then we would all go out to the same restaurant and have dinner. That's what you I know, we're all a bunch of we yeah. were all friends with each other, right. and that was, you know, when the fun was over, the business started. Did you ever see Roger Penske laugh? <laughs> I've seen Roger Penske laugh on a skiing trip. On a skiing trip, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not at the racetrack. Yeah, uh, we, you know, he was, you know, Roger and and Roger Penske and Peter. Peter was like so envious of Roger and oh, what sure. Roger what had done. done. Sure, because they were both uh, in the dealership world, yeah, right? And, yeah, okay. Uh, and perfectionists. Yeah, you know, Peter yeah. was a P Peter. Perfect was Peter's nickname. Right. He didn't get that for being sloppy. So we were uh, skiing out in Aspen, Colorado, and of course, everything is a challenge. So Peter and Roger happened to arrive at the top of the mountain and look at each other and said, "Who could get down first? So the two of them, <laughs> the two of them, take off. What year is this? Oh, this was probably mid 70s okay i just seen like mustaches and like sunglasses coming oh, down God, i'll yeah. see you at the yeah. bottom yeah <laughs> and uh later roger jennifer and myself are you know behind them watching this whole thing and i think peter has a massive wipeout hit hit a bankman i mean he right. must have been doing Full tilt. 40 miles an hour when he when he tipped over so it was you know that was just the way it was back then sure sure so Roger laughed by being the winner. Yeah. So Roger okay. had a big smile on his face. That's a laugh of conquering. <laughs> okay. So who is the class clown? Who is who is the? But but not the. You know, there's some obvious guys during that era who we who have reputation. My God, it got loud. It it yeah. continues to get loud. Uh, who is the funniest guy we wouldn't know was funny? The guy that really had a a sense of humor that not many people saw was Bob Wallach. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, Bob Wallach gave me the best advice in racing that I've ever gotten from anybody. And Bob and I were teammates with Porsche in the early days. And he kind of took me under his wing and he said, you know, if you want to have a long relationship with Porsche, you'll do two things. One, you'll keep your mouth shut. And two, you'll drive as fast as you can go. <laughs> I said, okay. Makes easy sense to, to me. Easy to remember. Yeah. 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 So, you know, th you're... Your reputation today, speaking of which, is, is sort of being the, you know, the American Porsche factory driver. There was, you know, wasn't the heard of thing. What do you think it was about you that, that sort of made them clap onto you? Because notoriously, even today, they're familiar, they're famous for going for Germans or Europeans. And, and obviously, American drivers aren't that common on the Porsche roster. Well, I, th I think, you know, when Porsche invited me to become, you know, become a team member, I think that the American market was very important to them. Sure. And they saw somebody that fit into their mode very right. easily. Right. So it wasn't like they had to try too hard around uh -huh. me. They just, it just you was just it's like a shoe. Yeah, you know, sometimes right. you put a shoe on and it fits, <clears throat> other times right. it doesn't fit. And they were comfortable with that. So, um, and, you know, I took that advice that Bob gave me and you know, I just kept my mouth shut. I did what I was told to do, right. and that's what they liked. Of course. And I was fast, and, the, yeah. and I brought the car back in one piece, and that was all I cared about. Do you think if you'd had Twitter at that age, that wouldn't have happened? Twitter? Twitter. If you'd had Twitter at that at that time. Do you have Twitter now? Yeah, I got Twitter. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
might have to fire you. You know, I mean, who? It, it's just a. It was a, a different way of doing business back then. Right. And. You know, everything now is instantly known by everybody. Right. You know, every move you make is right. is recorded and right. it will co come up on somebody's website. Right. Back then, things were much more sort of private and secret. Right. You know, we were. You know, when you were when you were in the Porsche team, you had a certain protocol that you had to do, and mm -hmm. you had to meet certain things, and and they expected you to do certain things. They expected you to conduct yourself in a certain way when you were at the racetrack. Right. They frowned upon people that generated a lot of publicity. Right. You know, they just you're, wanted you're there to promote their yeah. brand, not your own. Right. Right. And uh, so that's why I fit into that mold very easily with them. Right. Yeah, and, and to this day, I mean, right. to this day, it's it's uh, one that you know is is a very comfortable association with with Porsche and myself, right. and you know I do a lot of ambassador work for them. Yeah. Uh, um, Mark Weber just retired from right. racing, and now he's. Are you looking you know, at him with like the evil eye? Like, no, 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 I'm doing <laughs> no, the ambassador no, work. You stay away. I think that Mark. Uh, I think that that's good for him that he's yeah. an ambassador now, and yeah. um, I think he'll relish in that job, and I think he'll do a good job for Absolutely. Porsche. But that's on the European side. Right. I'm on the American you side. You still got your domain. You know, okay. that's. So don't, oh. I don't screw with you. Don't screw with me. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yes. No, I, I, I think if you guys got in a fight, I bet you could scrap. No, he's a big. He's a big. Well, but I bet you he's could get dirty. so. He. You know, I knew Mark when he was racing in Formula One, and he right. was a. A beefy guy. Yeah. yeah. And ever since he started racing for Porsche, they have got him on a, I don't know what kind of diet, but he looks like. He's pretty know, gone. Yeah, yeah, he's gone. <laughs> yeah. His face, his, in his face especially. Yeah. You know, he's, uh, yeah, give it about three months. Give him, give him a he's week with me, I'll wreck him. Oh, you yeah. ruined that. We won't take it. We'll go on a road trip. But Mark Just Weber can drive our, our Honda Odyssey. He can drive our Odyssey and, and you'll get him diabetes. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah right. It'll got work. It. It'll work. <laughs> Uh, Do you like Pringles, Curly? <laughs> Pringles? Pringles? Uh, no. Reese's Pieces? <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, we'll be all right. Would you believe Sean ate an entire bag of Reese's Pieces yesterday? Like a family size. Really? Uh, yeah. yeah well, it was 900 calories 900 in about calories. six minutes. Yeah. We uh, lost half a finger. Didn't. <laughs> who, in the, who in the current crop would you say is most like you of the current crop of factory drivers? Patrick. Uh, I knew you were going to say Patrick. <laughs> Don't give him that much credit. You know, Pat, I'll tell you the funny story about Patrick. When Fat Patrick was first sort of being looked at by Porsche, right. Bob Carlson, who I don't know if yeah, you remember yeah, yeah. Bob, but Bob and I worked really closely together. And, and um, Bob took me aside and he said, I, I'm going to introduce you to somebody. Be nice to him. Be cooperative. <laughs> uh, you know, don't blow him off. And he's he, he says... You know, Patrick wants to be the next Hurley Hayward. And you're like, and that so doesn't need to be a next Hurley <laughs> <So> Hayward. <laughs> well, but Pat Patrick's, um, I, I feel sorry for Patrick in a lot of ways. We do too. He, he never got, he, he's never won a big race overall. He's got plenty of class wins, but he's never won a big race yeah. overall. And I really, it's unfortunate that the Porsche factory didn't give him a, an opportunity to, to drive the 
P1 car. Right. Yeah, yeah. Because he's extremely talented. He's a great spokesman. He's, you know, he's well-grounded, and I think he could have done a great job, but he never got that chance, and I don't know why. I mean, yeah. he's got all the all the right things going for him, but right. he just never was able to land that thing. And I said, you know, if you want to, you know, class wins are something that's good, and, you, you know, you can make a living that, but you've got to win these races overall if yeah. you want to have a, a name that's... Be a legend. L yeah. Legend. Yeah. 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 So... One of the things that uh, Patrick talked about when he was with us last year, or last... Yeah, last year, um, you know, when he got the, the Porsche call, so to speak, you know, he was in that point in his career where he was still trying to make it an open-wheel racing trying to keep his options open, and obviously taking that factory contract restricts all that. It means, I mean, you could be setting yourself up for a great career, but it also means that Indy dream, that Formula One dream, it's pretty much gone. Um, was it the same thing for you when you got the call? You know, I didn't have, when my, when I raced at Indy, it was, I made, that race, racing in that race, made it very clear to me that that was not what I wanted to do. Right, Those, okay. those cars. Okay. Uh, they were super dangerous back then. Okay. If you had a, an accident in one of them, you were going to get hurt. Yeah. That was just, it was just what it was, right? That's you know, the way it was. Um, the sports car mentality and the people that were in the sports car arena, were, were there was much more connection between them and myself. So, you know, I had a, a call from Bernie Ecclestone to do a Formula One deal. Uh, I went over there, tested. It was... I didn't feel comfortable in those cars either. So, oh, and you know, what car? Are they in the Brabham? No, it was. Uh, you know, I don't even remember what the damn thing was. Wow, <laughs> it left that much of an impact. Most people yeah. spend their whole lives trying to get an F1 was, car. You could care less. It was. Uh, it wasn't a Porsche. No, it wasn't a Porsche, and it was. It was very clear to me that unless you live that life, yeah. you are never going to make it. Sure. Unless you lived in Germany, unless you spoke fluent languages, mm -hmm. two or three languages, because right. it was such a nationalistic thing. So mm -hmm. it, if you race for an English team, you had to be English. Right. If you race for a, a French team, you had to be French, right. Italian, blah, blah, blah. So, on. so you do the 936 for several years. You drove at Le Mans with the Whittingtons, Don and Dale? You know, I... I think I did. I don't. Yeah, according to Wikipedia, 1980, you ran the Sun System Whittington Sun, Brothers okay, Racing. Okay, just Sun System. 935K3. Yeah, yeah, yeah. DNF. Um, Don and Dale. Yeah, that's why I don't remember it. <laughs> <laughs> so tomorrow we'll be, in theory, sitting down with Don Whittington. He's been a little bit cagey <laughs> with getting a hold of him. If you could ask Don Whittington anything at all, what would it be? Oh, God, you know, um, I don't know what I'd ask him. I mean, it, uh, how'd you do it? What, what, <laughs> what was your method? I'll tell you, uh, you can ask if you do it with Don. Sure. It was one of the Whittingtons, and I don't remember which one it was, but he and, he and I were really having a nose-to-tail dice at Daytona in a 250. <laughs> he was right on my butt, and he was going to drop draft by me he got ahead of me we were side by side and I brought him down there so late and he was just and I was I knew that this was going to be a really tail wagger going into turn one 
and he was on the outside, I was on the inside, so I knew I had the advantage. And he went in there and lost control. And I looked up, you know, I got around the corner and looked up, and he was like doing these <laughs> massive spins, and that was the end of that deal. And I went on to win that race. I think, I don't remember what year that was, but he'll remember it because. So that's not not necessarily a question, more of like a ha Yeah, like what, like <laughs> what, were you thinking? what Daytona experience did you most regret? Does anything stand out? Because Hurley had one. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Trying to outbreak Hurley in turn one. Well, that's what you get. One thing I want. <laughs> Who were your favorite teammates? I would assume your favorite teammate to be Peter Gregg because you guys had such a long history together. Wow, it just got really quiet. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> well, um, it really, I mean, we had a long friendship, but the yeah. actual professional uh, association with Peter only lasted up until 1976. Okay. And he and I sort of had a personal arrangement where we would race together at least once a year regardless of what direction we were going. Sure. So then in 76, I raced for Vashik Polak, then Bruce Levin. So I was then sort of, you know, selling my, my wares to whoever the highest bidder was. And Peter... I would race in, with Peter in some of the more important races, like mm -hmm. Daytona and Sebring. Right. But the other races, I could was free to do it because he was, you know, pretty cheap and didn't want to pay me that much <laughs> money. And I said, okay, that, that's fair. So, and he allowed me to do it. So, but we always remained friends. Um, so. I forget what the what was the question. Favorite teammate. So oh, what I was going to ask was favorite teammate that we wouldn't assume, but in this case, well, Al Hover was really was. I yeah. loved racing with Al. Yeah. I, I like I like racing with Al as a teammate, and I like racing with Al as a uh, as a competitor, because you could run wheel to wheel with with uh, with Al and never worried about being put in a bad position. I remember we, we I was driving for Jaguar. He was driving for Porsche at this time, and we were having just this great race at, at Daytona. I had the lead, and he was tucked right up on my back bumper, and there was a yellow flag, and I, I lifted, and he it was a stationary flag. So by the time I lifted and got by the car, he didn't lift, and he shot by me, so there wasn't a penalty. And I was screaming in the radio that, you know, Al passed me under a yellow flag, you know. So, so they never, they didn't do anything. The officials didn't do anything. And he came up after the race so apologetic. He said, I'm, I, I am so sorry I won this race. You should have won this race. Because I took advantage because I knew that you were going to lift there. And I, I had the momentum, and I knew that it was going to be a, a yellow, just a stationary yellow, and I passed you clear of the yellow flag. And he said, I really feel awful about doing that. But I said, you know, that's racing. But yeah. that's the kind of guy he was. So he was. He's apologizing yeah. for winning, even yeah. though it wasn't wrong. He just felt. Yeah. So Benny wrote me this really nice letter. Not only did he apologize to the racetrack, he also wrote me a nice letter. Now, on the flip side, who was most likely your least favorite teammate? I don't know if it was just luck or whether people really listened to me, but I was able to craft a pretty close relationship with the guys who were running teams, yeah. and I could pick and choose who ah, I wanted. There you go. And 
it always worked out. I always drove with guys that had the same kind of metal attitude that I did, and, and sort of we all complimented each other. I hate getting into like topics of the week kind of stuff, um, but uh, but obviously you came, you you drove in an era where there were guys like Truman, guys like Aiken, guys who you know were bringing fun again, and we're still having to race with everybody on a big level. Like Al Holbert, Al Holbert started same out like exactly that, thing. And, and Peter Gregg. So when you hear uh, you know obviously the, the current scene with driver rankings and that whole mess, where do you stand on that? I think driver driver ratings are total bull. I mean, is can we high five? Can we high five? There we go, dude. I like it. it. There, there is no logical reason why drivers should be rated. In my case, I want you know I've been preaching this to IMSA and Grand Am for a long time. Ever since they started that driver rating, drivers spend their lifetime building up a reputation where they can be respected by winning these big races. By being good, right? And by being good, by yeah. being excellent. Yeah. And when you get to that standpoint or that position of being excellence, then you're, you're, you're penalized by having a high rate. Yeah. Of, of, so, and especially if you're I racing like the for word a factory. Penalized. Yeah. yeah. You're penalized. Yeah. And th then it becomes a game of, of um, y you know, politicking to remain in your silver status because now the the, the only rating anybody wants to have is silver right because that gives you the biggest opportunity so you know they I don't know the reason why I think they try to give it they try to do it where the the independent guys and the, the non-professional guys have a chance to you know compete against the the pros but you know in my my whole career we had amateur guys competing with professional guys and it was sort of an unforeseen or unspoken rule that the private guys were all raced together at a certain point and then the the professionals would handle the rest did the and it worked perfectly did they ever complain that it was unfair no never 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 exactly this is something that sanctioning bodies have done to appease the guys that are spending the money. Right. And it's ridiculous. If I was a, it, personally, if I was a guy that was running the team that had the money and, and I w was classified as an amateur, that would be. You'd be annoyed. And, and I would no. be insulted by that yeah. because I am racing in a professional series. Yeah. I am a professional. I'm not an amateur. Right. They just don't see it that way. Yeah. No, I get it. What do you think they would uh, have to say about like an Al Hol an Al Holbert would be a perfect example, you know, Bobby. What obviously they grew in an, they drove in an era where that wasn't even an option. But do you think they would embrace that today, or do you think they'd say, "No, this is fucking nonsense"? No, I, I, I think that they would, you know, be against that. I, you know, I don't know why they started it. I mean, it's just, I think it was started in the ACO, in in sure. FIA, and then IMSA carried that over. Pull racing outside of this. Who is the coolest celebrity you've met? I like movies. I like going to the movies. Sure. And uh, Jason Stedman, you know, the oh, badass yeah. guy. Jason Statham? He's in all those. Yeah. No, okay. He's awesome. He was at Lamar this year. Yeah. Ah, okay. And uh, he was he was with Brad Pitt and Patrick. Dumpster. Uh, Dumpster well. was there. And they were all together. I said to Patrick, I 
said, you got to introduce me to this guy because he's, he's, <laughs> such a, he's such a badass. I love the way he... I like, this, his, I like the idea that you're using this random guy, Patrick Dempsey, <laughs> to, to... Hey, can you slip him a note? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but you're a movie guy. Yeah. All right, now we're, we're, now we're talking. Now we're talking. Yeah. Have you seen Dawn of the Planet of the Apes? <laughs> <laughs> That's a real question. Is that a serious question? That's a real serious question. Well, it's a question. Of course I have. Okay. Oh. See? Oh. The, whoa, the whoa, one whoa. that came out, the, the new one, the one Wait. that came out in 2014, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Not, yes. the, not the original. Yep. Yeah, no, yeah. I saw that. Yeah. So was the was the re- was the retort? Is that a serious question? Of course I've seen it. Is that what that meant? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I like all those sort of. I think it's an excellent movie. That's why the, we were the, just talking about the movies about it. that nobody else will go with you. Because <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's like you and Sean yeah. sitting in the theater. I'm down. Let's go. <laughs> We, we were talking about, <laughs> we were having this conversation about movies that we judge other people off of liking. And uh, that movie came up as. Uh, no, it was the opposite. It was like, as it was like yeah, because anybody who tells me that's a movie they wouldn't go see doesn't understand how excellent that movie is. But the point was is that I hadn't seen it, but yep. I didn't not, I didn't, Ooh. like, I'm not going to see it. I just hadn't seen it. That makes me scared to ask the next question. Okay. Uh, but I'm going to ask it. All right. Hurley Haywood, Lost in Translation. Have you seen it? Bill Murray, Scarlett Johansson? He's Japan. in Japan. Don't disappoint. Don't do it. Don't do it. You can. You yeah, know, I want to say yes, but it doesn't leave an impression, which means you didn't love it. <laughs> you load it. Stop loading. It I know. No, I'm side. trying to paint the picture. You're loading. I'm it on, on his side. side. I'm trying to help him. There is no side. You're loading <laughs> his side. Okay. So I'm not going to say. Oh yeah. Oh, I love that movie. I loved it. <laughs> it's good. It's good. It's okay. It's terrible. Doctor Strange Love. Okay. Excellent movie. Yeah. I love that movie. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Good. And the um, two, 2000, whatever that thing was, Space Odyssey 2001 thing. Space oh, Odyssey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 2000, okay. 2001. 2001. Yeah. 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 2001, A Space Odyssey. Yeah. It's amazing. I'm, I'm, I love that movie. Hal. Those are both Stanley Kubrick movies. Yeah. Yes. You a Kubrick guy? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Clockwork <laughs> Orange. Yep. Nice. Yeah. Oh, we're getting into okay. it now. Okay. Let's keep drinking. Big Kubrick Let's keep guy. Drinking. I'm liking yeah. this. Okay. We can make that happen tonight. All right. St. Augustine. Where does uh, Where does Steve stand on Kubrick? I. It, it's positive. He he likes Kubrick. Okay. <laughs> positive. He's much more uh, of an of an, an intellect than I am. So I'm I'm I'm. Is he a snob about this stuff? Like no, oh, I don't no, like no, dumb no, movies. No, 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 He's completely. Like, I'll okay, never watch Blades of Glory. Like he's yeah. is he that guy? Okay. No. <laughs> Plates of glory. Because I think it's an, no. Because being a figure skater, I love that movie. Former, former figure skater. And uh, you were a figure skater. I was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? I wouldn't look the part now. <laughs> <laughs> you, you take that smile off. You, you take that smile off. You Hurley Haywood. He's so <laughs> judging. He's so I love judging. being judged. <laughs> Don't you laugh, Hurley Haywood. <laughs> no, I, I apologize. I there was a time when I was maybe more fit. And uh, and I was in fact a competitive figure skater. And uh, this is the part of the show where it takes a turn. It takes a very bad turn. <laughs> Hurley and Ryan. Yeah, I got I got to ask you something. Go for oh, it. Here we go. Here it goes. When when you're twirling around in a circle, those are called spins. Really fast. Right. Spin. Yep. Spinning. How, how do you not lose your balance? I mean, what are you looking at? So you do kind of. In terms of losing your balance when you spin. You do spot a little bit in the sense that, like, you kind of know your surroundings. So, like, okay. you'll notice that there's a, you know, one of the lights up top is out or there's a banner <laughs> missing. So, like, when you spin, you kind of see, like, okay, there goes that hole among the lights. There's that one big right, red, red banner. So you kind of get a sense for where you're at revolutionary-wise. But the truth is you do lose your balance when you do that in the sense of, like, 
you do get a little disoriented when you when you come out of that spin. So if you ever watch a skating program on TV, you'll notice they never follow a spin up with something complicated. Because uh, you're like, wait yeah, a second. You come out of your bearings. spin, then you're doing some basic footwork. Usually the spin is the last big move of the, of the program for exactly that reason, because you kind of don't know where you are for a minute. And so you need a minute to get your bearings. So usually you finish your program with a big spin, or you do it in the midway point where you follow it with footwork. But you don't go from a spin to a jump. It just doesn't work that way for exactly that reason. I do so. not like things that, not like amusement park rides, I don't. I get violently ill. Oh, really? really? Yeah. Huh. Race car driver has, around, really, emotion sickness it. problems. Interesting. Is that a control thing, though? Because with skating, you're in control. So it's a well, little bit of a different sensation. I don't what? know what the reason is, but sure. I just don't. What about, like, riding on the skid pad at a racing school? No. Yeah, not, not, not so much. <laughs> I have other people that do that. <laughs> I'm above that. <laughs> I'm Hartley Haywood. <laughs> And you're pretty close to Daytona here. Do, do you ever get the call from IMSA or the France family to come down and, like, because a guy like you's seen a lot and, and through the probably the heyday of the sport, you have an expert just up the road. And then do they ever call and say, hey, come down and talk to us and tell us what you would do to help? You know, as 10 years ago, there was just a handful of people running Grand Am or mm -hmm. IMSA. Now it's a cast of hundreds. Yeah. And so decision-making becomes muted, and it becomes, you know, whatever agenda somebody has on their plate, that's what's going to happen. Right. So there's no consensus. You, 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 you can't lead by, by masses. You have to be a leader, and you have to then delegate your authority, but there's one one person that should be making yeah. the 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 rules or the, the decisions. And right now, there's a, there's too many people making too many important yeah. decisions yeah. about what to do in in IMSA. I mean, I love Jim France. Jim France yeah. is a super guy. He he, you know, came to us with the DP program. Yeah. We were the first team that signed up. JC was my teammate. Yeah. He, he, you know, he turned around. He really did a great job. And I owe a lot to Jim. But you know, you can't, Jim is only one person within that whole whole NASCAR framework. And you know, it's you don't want to step on anybody's toes. So you just kind of say, okay, you know, it's your deal. And you own it, so you run it the way you want to. And if you if you want my advice, I'm always there to give it. So Ryan and I are listeners. What do you think of the current direction of where Hardware is going? The current direction of what? Of where the series is going. When John Bishop first started IMSA, he and Bill Sr. were partners, and Bill Sr. gave him the finances to start IMSA. And it was super, super successful. And one of the premises that was first made known was we're going to do our own thing in America. We're not going to, yeah. we're not going to kind of kowtow to whatever's going on in France. What the ACO or what the yeah. FIA are, are are doing. And it was so successful that the ACO and the FIA said, you know, these guys might be onto something. And pretty soon, the the wheel turned, and they were. Basically, it was dupl duplication on both sides of the continent, or the ocean. Now, when Jim started the DP program, 
That was really a great concept. It was cost effective. The cars were exciting to drive. We promoted that. IMSA was our enemy. We hated everything that IMSA was doing. And then all of a sudden, overnight, boom, we do a 180 degree turn. NASCAR buys IMSA. And suddenly, IMSA comes over and controls everything. Right. And, and to shed some light on them, I mean, specifically within even the personnel, a lot of the IMSA personnel yeah, ended up making the decisions with Everybody came over. Now, you know, there's not a lot of the original IMSA people that are left, but the guys that are making the decisions um, need to be, you know, the, in, in politics, it's all transparency. You know, be transparent, be communicate with what you're doing. And that is terribly lacking. So you have these wealthy people that are basically funding the teams that are racing in IMSA not having a good time. Oh, I, I mean, know. They, they are not having a good time out there. And these guys, you know, can say, you know, I'm going to go buy a 150-foot yacht and go cruise down in the Mediterranean. Yeah. Well, and you've I can have a lot more fun doing that than taking abuse from from all the... And, how many, and how many times have you seen that in 40 years? Yeah. I mean, it's happened all the time. So sure. they've got the framework to make it work. Now they just need to sort of massage some of the things that sanctioning bodies don't really pay it too much attention to, and that's customer service. Uh, in my business, funny you say that. In, 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 in the automobile business, it's right. all about customer service. Right. Your CSI index either kills you or makes you. And you think that comes from leadership? Yeah. yeah. I mean, where, where else does that come from? Yeah. But who is leading? Who, who is leading the charge here? Let me, let me just say one thing about BOP. <laughs> By God, please yes. do. BOP is okay. Yeah. The yeah. problem is, is what I said before, is customer service. Yeah. So if you want to change and make your series good, you've got to take care of your customers that are spending the money in your series. Absolutely, yes. And that's what's lacking. BOP is only a small portion of that, right. but everybody blames BOP. Right, like right. David McNeil gets out and he blames BOP, but it's not BOP. The reason that David McNeil left the series is because he was not addressed. He right. would call up, try to talk to somebody, they yes. wouldn't call him back. Yes. Yes. So he got pissed, he said, you know, I don't, I'll, I'll take my money and go somewhere else. And right. Go. Right. Now right. he's got a contract, he's got to validate that, that, that contractual stuff. On the, on the, on the WeatherTech side, can, but, but on yeah, his racing he, efforts, he can do what he wants. Yeah, yeah. He can, so. Forget, forget IMSA for a second. What about the, how would you say the culture of racing has changed. In other words, uh, uh, you know, you you grew up in the kind of the boys' club where there was a certain dynamic, a certain element. You you kind of sound a, a little bit uh, nostalgic for an era when people kind of hung out more. Uh, but how else has it changed? Like, is it is it more friendly towards women, or is it more gay friendly? Is it more friendly towards minorities? Things like that. Is how would you label all that? Well, I think in general, all those things now are sort of much more accepted. It's not such a closed view on all of the different personalities that are involved in sure, racing. Sure, sure. So I think it's more open. I keep thinking back to, to your ear when you say, you, you know, everybody used to go to dinner together. By the way, were you in the, the big food fight at Seepkins? <laughs> yes. Oh, <laughs> okay. Cool. Yeah, David Hobbs told us the whole rundown on that today. What, what was your role in it? 
I was the uh, <laughs> slingshot roll maker with the big wad of peanut or uh, butter in it. <laughs> we, we hit the, the David Tom tell you how that started or how that stopped. No, oh, no. I didn't hear about how he it didn't stopped. Actually yeah, tell us. he told yeah. us how it started. He probably told you how it started. Yeah, yeah. How it stopped? Okay. Was John Bishop? Oh. Because okay. a huge roll that was launched by me hit John Bishop in the face <laughs> and stuck on the side of his face, and that was the end of that how whole deal. That early? <laughs> no, we we are we are gentlemen. <laughs> I love that we're bringing that food fight back to its little. To, to what it should be. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's to be a, a new generation. Now. Hashtag uh, Seepkins. Seepkins. Do you think you'd be any different in your private life today if you if you were 22 showing up onto the scene? Um, just with sort of the politically where things are today. Do you think you'd be any different? No, I I am what you see. I right. mean, it's just, <laughs> I don't think I would change anything. It's right. just, you know, it's, it's work for me. and I'm not going to change anything. I think, I think. Drivers today are under a lot more pressure than they were when when I was going right. starting and and at the top of my career. I mean, when when I look at the guys that are racing for the factory team and what they do in preparation for the yeah. factory for the drive at right. Le Mans, they have a book, and I'm not kidding you. The book is like this big of rules and regulations on that how they to have conduct to, themselves that they have to learn. Uh. Of exactly when they go to bed, when they get up, what they eat, how they dress, what the, yeah. what the exercise routine is, right. what they do when they get out of the car. Right. You know, when when uh, Patrick and myself were involved in the young driver competition a couple weeks ago, and we had four kids that came in, and it's a very intense um, training that we put them through the, through the first day, and then they're given equal cars, two cars, and it's really a, a tense regimen that they go through and I kept during this press I've been doing this for the last five years with them yeah. that when I started we never had anything like that yeah. we never it was just you they just sort threw of had you out know, there yeah. and you just had to sort of wing it and, yeah. and, and, and hopefully and I was I was terrible in front of a microphone right if you put a microphone in front of me I would just completely freeze yeah you know get it away from me I don't want to do it right and, you know, over time, because you are put in that position, you have to speak to, you know, audiences. You have to be amusing. You have to have something interesting to talk about. You kind of learn it on the run. But right. now, nowadays, all of that is taught. It's like grooming. It's like going to, to uh, grooming school, you know, finishing school. Where you clearly learn, not a product you of You learn this. everything there is to know. Right. It's like the car... Carl uh, Carnegie course about public speaking. Right. They teach you how to do that now. So you wouldn't keep your private life any different if you were new today? No. Yeah. I, Last I heard, the, your, your <clears throat> the documentary about you and Peter Gregg is, has been funded. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. How is that coming yeah, it's, along? It's uh, coming. It's, uh, I, I think our target date is sometime uh, toward the end of 2017. Okay, so we still have a ways away. And it's also going to come out with a book that's being done also. Oh, on, for, on you? Okay. Yeah. Um, so um, hopefully that we're trying to work where both of those will be released. Right. 
within at the a, same a similar time. time frame. All right, well, let's get the pre-sales going here. So just, you know, for, for not everybody know who, who knows the story, I don't want to get too much into crazy backstories, but, but obviously we established a relationship with you and Peter as far as having driven together for, for a very, very long time. Um, and then obviously Peter passed on in 1985, four? 81. 81, excuse me. Um, you know, by basically. Or 1980. Right. 80, right. And, and he took his own life, if for lack of a better expression. Um, and so this documentary kind of covers the a lot of the backstory leading up to that? Uh, yeah. I don't, I don't want to talk too much about what, what's in that film. Um, but it, it deals with the mental issues um, and... Uh, which now are is extremely important. It's on everybody's sort of hit list right now of trying to understand what mental health is all about, right. and all of the different factions that cause you know suicides in this country, especially with young kids. Right. Um, so we have a better understanding now. We still don't understand it completely, but mm. back in the uh, '80s, that was all like black magic. Right. And nobody really knew how to address it. Nobody really knew what the signs were uh, and how to deal, what to do when the signs appeared. Right. So um, it's sort of uh, an awakening of trying to teach people what to look for when those signs are relevant. Right. And I, so. I read an interview with Derek Dodge, who who is putting it together, I assume, still. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he made it sound like he's really trying to aim it towards a, a much bigger audience than a racing audience for exactly that reason to sort yeah. of understand that. And so, yeah, and I obviously think, this is, yeah. go ahead. He, uh, he's, I think he's a, uh, sensitive to these d things. And yeah. I think, you know, Patrick Dempsey's got a, a, a role in this. And, and I think, you know, the two of them working on this film together, I think the end result will be something that will be positive. Right. And, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, I have nothing to lose, right. so to speak, um, but I think I have a lot to gain and to contribute to a lot of different fractions that are um, maybe misconceived in this environment. Yeah. Okay. No, that's, a, that's a fair statement. Especially 1981, the sort of understanding of mental health, the taboos of suicide, things like that, they're probably much more open to discussion now than they were 30 years ago yeah so. i mean people didn't discuss that stuff back in the 80s yeah uh, right. this kind of a, a topic that people were that people didn't know about right you know, they just it was just something subjects that people didn't know what to say or how to react to yeah and it was and then when people did take their lives with suicide it was kind of verboten that nobody wanted to talk it. about yeah. it you know you know so-and-so committed suicide well when you look at, you know, people that commit suicide today, I mean, it's no different. But at least people are talking about it, the reasons why it happens and how how to prevent it. And, you know, medicine is, is much better now than it right. was back then. So, you yeah. know, it's... But well, it's, it's something we've never discussed. Um, but uh, I lost a girlfriend in uh, 1999. Um over the over the same circumstances and i i know the mental issues i went through in terms of not seeing the signs wondering what was i what role did i play in this whole process and and i very specifically remember getting a, a phone call the night before 
that obviously I had no idea what that was leading towards and, and you know, so it's 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 cool to see something like that getting covered in what I assume will be a very kind of open environment to really explore these kind of issues. So. I'll tell you, after the Peter had his accident at Le Mans on the street, yeah. flipped a car over with two of his best friends inside. Luckily, nobody was seriously injured, but Peter's eyesight went sort of askew. And when we came back to the States, we were racing in the Paul Revere race together, Peter and myself. And Peter said, you know, you set the car up. If you need me, I'm there, and you do it. So it was really, really hot that that evening at, in Daytona, and I basically just ran, ran out of steam. I was making mistakes, and I said, you know, I just I got to bring the car in. So we were scheduled for a pit stop, a short, just a short fill, with about a half an hour left to go. So I, I said, is Peter ready to go? And they said, yeah, he's standing here ready to go. He's got his helmet on. So. He jumped in the car. I gave him the car with a lap lead. He lost the lap lead, and he just, from that point on, just he just went, yeah. went downhill. Yeah. And basically, he blamed me for doing that on purpose to make him look bad. Oh. And ba basically, forbid me to go on to the dealership property, and I did from, that was in that July. Was, wow. And... I didn't, he, he got married in that time frame. He was married, I think, the first part of, or the end of November. And then nine days later, he killed himself. The day before he killed himself on Sunday, I get a phone call from Peter. He says, come on down to the house. He lived about a mile down the beach from me. And he said, uh, Deborah is cooking. Uh, lunch and come down and I want to talk so basically when I got there basically it was like a time capsule from the very first time we met to the present and and future what we would do going forward if I had been trained in in that Good understanding. role I, understand. I, knew, I would know exactly yeah. what he was thinking about doing. Yeah. and the next day he woke up went and bought a gun, yeah. and Peter hated guns, yeah. and shot himself. Yeah. Uh, you know, could I have done something different? Yeah. Could I have said something? Yeah. Uh, you just don't know. Yeah. And so it bugs me every time I think about it that, yeah. you know, could I have said something different? But you just, you don't have the tools. Right. It's like, you know, you go into a guy that's, you know, got his chest open yeah. and somebody says here's the scalpel yeah. through the heart it's surgery so you would know what to do yeah. Yeah. so um, it's, this was really a shock I'll tell you yeah. and 35 years later do you feel like you're more to grips now than, than you were well I think I I'm, would better understand the circumstances that would cause that and if somebody was in distress, and this is not distress from just one incident. Right. This was distress that you sort of didn't see. And in over retrospect, there were all these signs. Exactly. Yeah. And so, uh, I think I would have been more aware on trying to be sensitive to get Peter the help that he needed. Um, 
rather than just kind of ignore it and say, well, that's just his personality, which we all did. Right, you know, right. You're going to be a friend of Peter's. You just accepted, accepted right. the Right. Well, especially a guy who had such a dynamic parts. personality right. leading up to it. Exactly. Okay. So uh, has the documentary been named yet? Uh, I think there's a fairly good name, but I can't tell you what it is. Okay. okay. Copy that. Fair enough. Well, is this a festival piece? Like, are we hoping to send this to Cannes and Sundance? And uh, I mean, if Patrick's behind it, I assume. Yeah, yeah, I think they're trying to get it in one of the film festivals, but we'll... we'll yeah, I don't want to screw cool. anything up. Sure, we'll that's fine. Sure. Well, what we can do uh, later on on our website is we can link the website that I'm sure this film yeah, will there, have. There was a Kickstarter so, campaign, which yeah, is now passed. So, so what's the name of the Kickstarter? Do we oh, on top of our head? I, I think the Kickstarter has been removed, so I think there's oh, going to be lapsed. another... Like teaser coming out that sure. will, you. Yep. you know, get people's interest going okay. again. The book that's you're hoping to coincide is that a, a Hurley Haywood autobiography, or more specific to the relationship? Haywood. Okay, that's a Hurley Haywood. That's being done by Sean Cridlin. Okay, just to plug the biography a little bit. What was the process? Did he spend time with you? Was there a lot of interaction? Sean? Yeah. Yes. This has been going on for about a year and a half. Oh wow. Like and hanging out, sleeping over. Yeah, Have and he, we would do, you know, sit down, do a lot of interviews, um, tons of photography, and I don't really, I was a little bit uncomfortable with a book that, you know, preaches the philosophies of racing. And yeah. Wants to read that. No, exactly. There's a lot and out there. So, I think it's kind of more like a life story, and right. and the things that I felt were important in my life, and about, you know, my my background, my family background, um, and the sort of the chronological steps that I took to get where I am today. Right. And sort of, you know, sure. over 12 chapters. How much of your private life do they get into? Um, they get into enough. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent answer. Mm -hmm. Okay. Cool. All right. How painful is this really for you? <laughs> it's not painful at all. No, fair enough. So are we getting dessert? Or I don't know. What do you want? You want dessert? <laughs> no dessert. dessert. <laughs> He's like, I want out. <laughs> what, is, what is your favorite track to travel to for off-track festivities, like a favorite restaurant or atmosphere, things like that? Well, my favorite race racetrack is Watkins Glen. My dog is named after one. Yeah, 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 we noticed. Um, <laughs> and uh, that is because I have stayed in the same hotel, the same room, and the same bed since 1969. Yeah. Wow. Glenn Motor Court. Yeah, yeah, yeah familiar. To, to yep. Vic and, your, and Linda Fr Franzese. I knew their, their parents. <laughs> and it, that was, I mean, they used to make, when the Formula One guys were there, uh, their mother used to make milkshakes, <laughs> and for the Europeans, milkshakes were something that was com completely new, right. and everybody loved it. Yeah. So they would do their testing, they would do their, you know, qualifying, and they would and that was that, yeah. race down to the the hotel for milkshakes. Right. So that's my favorite place. I love the, you know, the restaurants that are around there. There's just a great number. Bob Snagrass was from Elmira, okay. uh, so he was a Bob was a huge 
you know, part of my life, uh, my whole racing career, right. basically, was sort of crafted after Peter left yeah. um, by Bob. Yeah. And Bob would, he, Bob was kind of my s sounding board of all the things that I did. So, um, but to me, when people say, what's your favorite racetrack? I tend not to try to get favorite racetracks sure. or places that I hate going. Yeah. And okay. so a favorite racetrack is something that's close to the airport. Yeah. That has yeah. good racing. God damn, I you love know, this Good guy. restaurants around yeah. and good hotels to stay at. Yeah. The racetrack is almost secondary. Yes. Steve's not really a racing guy, right? No. Yeah. So for someone like him, I, I always use this for my own barometers. What's, what's the event he looks forward to? Is there one? Like a race he's got to go to? Well, well, I think he enjoys going to Daytona. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's a pretty um, fun atmosphere. Is because he Rolex. doesn't have to go to an airport? <laughs> no. Okay. He can just drive there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, he like he likes sports. He likes tennis. You know, he, there's lots of things that he enjoys doing. But, you know, he's not one that would get onto an airplane and f travel 3,000 miles to go to a race. Right. Okay. It's my, and I probably wouldn't either. Yeah, that's <laughs> no, 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 my job. But that's you know I'm not going to do it. That's right. that's probably why he's pretty cool because all of a sudden you can get away from racing. So yeah, no, I agree. So because you spent so much time in your career racing Porsches, is there a car outside of the brand that you wish you could have driven but you never got a chance to? Uh, not really. I mean, you know, I raced Audis. Won the Trans Am Championship in an Audi, which was a great experience. I raced the coolest Jaguars in existence. Yeah, the Group 44. The group 44. Yeah, yeah. And I raced for Porsche. So those three manufacturers are probably the only really cars that anybody would really yearn to drive. Now, I drove a Ferrari, an F40 Ferrari, which was a complete disaster <laughs> i drove the nissan gtp car which was a, a nightmare <laughs> um so there's you know there's other cars that i have driven i drove the ford remember the ford probe yeah yeah spencer brumpelli's dad drove it wild ass car yeah <laughs> but you know i got to drive that car so i've driven lots of sort of really cool cars kind of on a one-off deal um which never, you know, interfered with the relationship that I had with Porsche. So that was something that I was really protective of and didn't ever want to do anything that would piss anybody off with Porsche by driving something else. So usually I had, when I r r ran for Jaguar, it was with Porsche's permission. And when I ran for Audi, it was with Porsche's permission because at that point they were, you know, best buddies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So obviously, you know, the, the paddock can be very, very guarded at times. Um, how do you think it is that the story's never gotten out about Johnny O'Connell trying to murder Dario Franchitti? You know, for a long time, I always thought that um, Johnny was friends with Dario. But obviously that's not true because I saw him almost deliberately swerve out of the pits to try to hit Dario. Yeah. And, you know, I just couldn't believe it. So, Crazy. yeah, Crazy you never boy. know. Yeah. Obviously, there's there's still a story to be told, and, and there'll be a book and documentary. What do you want the Hurley legacy. Haywood legacy to be? 
well, that I did something worthwhile that brought enjoyment and satisfactions to people's lives. So when I go around and I go to, you know, lots of places and people come up and, you know, they say, you know, look at this picture. And it is a picture of them when they were just a tiny little kid with their father. Yeah. And now they're bringing their kids and having their picture taken with me. And that, you know, they, they're, you get these letters from people that you read and you just, you have no idea of the impact that people, that you have yeah. on people, yeah. what, what you do. Even the simplest things um, can mean so much to somebody. Uh, I get this letter when we were in Indianapolis this year for the old timers race. Um, and there was this dad with two small kids and the kids were really enthralled with the cars and I let them sit in one of the Millers, one of our Millers. That's cool. And I uh, had their, my picture taken with them and the father wrote me this long, beautiful letter about you know, how, how that's going to be a moment in their lives forever. To me, it was just, you know, a moment yeah. in in a 24-hour day yeah. that you just, you see somebody, you say, you know, I remember when I was that young, if somebody said, you oh, know, come and sit in my race car, they I would leap at that chance. So you do it's no skin off my, yeah. you know, but to do that. And it made such an impression on them. So those are the kinds of things that, I'm lucky that I've been able to be in a position where I can do those kind of things and been in a position where I could be successful in racing that has people want to come and, yeah. you know, be part of yeah. my life for even just a small moment. Yeah. If uh, silver-rated Scott Pruitt uh, beats your record, will that, uh, at Daytona, will there will a little piece of you kind of fall with that? Scott Pruitt is not going to beat my record. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Love that. Okay. Well, he's not coming on this podcast either, so yeah. you win. He didn't. No. <laughs> you replied to the email. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't get me started on Scott Pruitt. Oh. Okay. Oh, no. Now we, we have more wine, please. <laughs> no. Scott, I mean, in all seriousness, Scott has an unbelievable career. He's done, you know, all kinds of racing, but, you know, it's, he can be a little more humble, I think, in some of his responses. But I like it. Have you ever done finger guns in a television interview? Yeah. Have you ever done this thing in a, in a no. TV interview? You'd I would shoot somebody <laughs> if, with a real gun, right. not just. Have you ever been on TV and wanted to say hi to the dogs at home? No. <laughs> okay. Just making sure. Uh, cool. All right. Cocker spaniels all the way? Noah, you'd never look at another dog? Not a corgi guy? No. Uh, corgis are awesome. Spaniels, because spaniels are hunting dogs. Okay. So they hunt, both of them. Okay. Are corgis, good, are, corgis, corgis bird do nothing. Dogs. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so. Okay. Fair enough. You pull the guns out of the out of the drawer, and they are They're ready to go. right there. Oh, <laughs> right. oh awesome. yeah. We're ready. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get something. That's awesome. Cool. Well, I would say uh, Continental's got the check. Okay.
Wow, that was such a great episode. That guest really knew how to tell a story. Well, good, Ryan Eversley, who's clearly sitting here right next to me. I am glad that you liked legendary sports car driver Hurley Haywood. You're welcome, Sean. I'm right here. All right, enough of this nonsense. A huge, huge thank you to Hurley for not only giving us the time, but completely opening up his doors to us and kind of letting us uh, look around St. Augustine. Just a super cool, super gracious guy who really didn't need to, you know, be as candid with us as he was. So uh, nothing but but grateful and nothing but respect for that. So, all right, uh, let's get out of here. We're going to head over to uh, get another song from the Blue Hours, who's uh, obviously a personal favorite of mine. Uh, We are going to play a song called Remember, which you can also find on iTunes. And you should absolutely pay the 99 cents because these people are supporters of us. Was a time when